Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome back. This is episode 31 of Discovering the Old Testament, and the second in our series on the book of Isaiah. As I mentioned last time, we are going to spend a little extra time on this particular book because of its importance both for Jewish theology and as a cornerstone of early Christianity. As we've said in past episodes, the Hebrew scriptures have an interesting view of prophecy. It is, to be sure, a vital part of Israel's spiritual and national life, so much so that it cannot be left up to the whims of personal ambition. In other words, you did not decide that you were going to become a prophet for Yahweh when you grew up. It sort of happened to you. You will forgive the comparison, I hope, but becoming a prophet was a little bit like, well, jury duty. You didn't decide to get called. The call simply comes. You can't disregard it. Most of those who get the call would rather not, and it seems to happen only at the most insanely inconvenient time imaginable. Plus, prophets don't get a pass for extenuating circumstances. We would expect to find the calling and commission of Isaiah at the beginning of the book, but it doesn't happen until chapter 6. This is one of many signs that Isaiah is not a unified work of scripture, but instead is an assemblage of discrete writings, oracles, histories, and so on. Scholars generally agree that what they call First Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, are mostly the work of Isaiah the prophet, however disarranged those pieces may be. What follows first Isaiah is the work of his disciples, or what we might call the Isaiah school. However, chapter 6 is worth the wait, one might say. It is a classic example of the prophetic calling genre that sheds light not only on the understanding of the prophet's call and commission, but on the nature of God that extends such a call. The chapter begins with Isaiah in the temple, where he receives a remarkable vision of the heavenly court, including a theophany of God sitting on his throne. This vision of the heavenly court is by itself a powerful mark of prophetic authority. We find it in Ezekiel as well, where he refers to a vision of God's throne to support his claim of prophetic legitimacy. Moses on Sinai is, of course, a prototype to the point that God speaks with him uh, as a man speaks with his neighbor directly. Even the non-Israelite prophet Balaam claims that he had a vision of the Almighty in Numbers chapter 24, verse 4. This heavenly court is populated by strange creatures. In Isaiah's case, for instance, six-winged seraphim and the like. The idea of a heavenly council crops up from time to time in the Old Testament, even though it clearly caused at least a little theological discomfort for strict monotheistic Israelites. But the primary feature of God, as articulated by one of those seraphs, is holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it cries. The whole earth is full of his glory. But what does that mean? What is holiness in this context, and how does it inform Isaiah's calling and message? 
To answer that question properly, we need to go back into chapter 5 with the famous parable of the vineyard. Besides being an important source for information on ancient Israelite viticulture, it is one of the more pointed parables in Isaiah and had a deep influence on both Jewish and Christian thinking. The parable compares Israel to a vine that God is trying to cultivate into yielding acceptable fruit, but without success. Listen to chapter 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. Now, incidentally, this passage includes some truly brutal wordplay between the words for justice, mishpat, and bloodshed, mispach. Righteousness, tzedakah, goes with the cry tzedakah, uh, or the word for crying out. Some translators uh, render cry as indifference to suffering, but even without that translation, the clear point is that divine displeasure with Israel is due to a lack of social justice. So what does this have to do with holiness? One clue is in verse 16 of chapter 5. But the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice. The holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. Uh, the parallel construction equates justice, righteousness, and holiness. In fact, the word used for justice, mishpat, is better rendered as judgment technically a judgment that creates precedent for case law. Uh, the word for righteousness, tzedakah, is frequently rendered in modern Hebrew as uh, charity, but a better word is justice. The Jewish concept of justice differs from our sense of the word. In the Bible, it encompasses the fitness of an outcome, a setting to rights. One would call this justice the outcome of a proper mishpat, or court judgment, but without the vindictive or vengeful quality that we see in other forms of legal justice. Justice refers as much to lifting up the sufferer as it does to disempowering the oppressor. It implies mercy, deliverance, and restoration. Holiness, then, is in part defined by the presence of Hebrew-style justice. In general, the Hebrew Bible views holiness as that quality unique to God, the essence of his character, which also implies complete otherness and separateness. God is the source of holiness, which increases as one draws closer to God or to the sanctuary. Holiness can also be imparted by God to certain places or institutions, such as when he sanctified the Sabbath day to make it holy. Ironically, it is possible for humans to undermine the holiness of God. In the legislation found in the Torah, holiness can be dispelled by introducing impurity to the sanctuary, literally forcing God from his temple. But Isaiah is more concerned with moral holiness than ritual holiness. Justice, then, is a component of God's holiness, which Isaiah is called upon to preach, and he does so with passion and even ferocity, and the message is not pretty at all. 
Returning to chapter 6, God tells Isaiah in so many words that although he is commissioned by God to declare a message, that message will not get through. Verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. The dull minds, closed eyes, and stopped-up ears will prevent his audience from understanding. This particular part of Isaiah's calling has created understandable difficulties for readers. It seems as if God is commanding Isaiah to make it impossible for the people to hear and understand the message, almost as if he's setting up the Israelites for failure. On the surface, it certainly seems that way. Some readers take the meaning of this not as a command to prevent the message from getting through, but a reality check that, in spite of his best efforts, he's not going to make any progress, perhaps with the implication that he isn't going to take that failure personally, or at least he shouldn't take it personally. The people simply will not listen. When Isaiah asks, How long, O Lord? The answer is until after the nation suffers near total annihilation and a tiny remnant is left. The implication of this and similar readings elsewhere is that God will start over with this remnant, but Isaiah receives no assurance that the people will listen, only the stark prediction that he is to continue to preach and prophesy until there is almost no one left. With a predicted outcome like that, and given that indifference or hostility is the usual reaction to prophetic preaching, it's hardly any wonder that when a prophetic calling comes, most try to get out of it, pleading, well, lack of speaking skills, unworthiness, jury duty, or whatever. Prophets also have a history of dying violently, or living under the threat of violent death. In Isaiah's case, it was somewhat reversed. His was the unenviable circumstance of seeing everything and everyone around him devastated and destroyed by protracted violence. It's clear from his writing that Isaiah took no pleasure in the comeuppance, for lack of a better word, of his fellow Israelites. He laments their fate as passionately as he castigates their short-sightedness and ignorance. At the same time, Isaiah had some advantages that other prophets did not enjoy. One of these was that because of his high social status as part of the Israelite elite, he had access to the royal court. In addition to the nominal immunity from judicial punishment for speaking inconvenient truths, Isaiah was also highly literate. This guy knew how to turn a phrase giving his writing a power and vitality that continues to inspire and awe us to this day. But prophets also had social or 
perhaps we might call it artistic license to behave in strange ways in order to make their point. For instance, Isaiah was said to have walked about naked for two years in order to communicate the coming captivity of Judah. This makes him sound a bit more like a Berkeley prophet on Telegraph Avenue than a staid member of Jewish high society. But prophets are set apart, which is to say that they not only are designated for a special purpose, they operate by a slightly different set of rules. Earlier in this podcast, I mentioned how prophecy was not a career choice. It was something that found you. At the time, I was talking about what we might call real prophets, that is, the ones who were sufficiently authentic and insightful that their writings survived. In fact, there were also institutional prophets and court prophets who served as advisors to the royal court, careerists, if you will. We see their successors among us today, everything from consultants to sycophants to lobbyists to uh, members of the punditry. In Isaiah's time, these institutional prophets functioned as both advisors and yes-men, or sometimes yes-women, who provided political and religious cover for whatever the king wanted to do. They were professionals. They knew where their interests lay and how to protect them. Long before Isaiah's time, these institutional prophets had entrenched themselves into the palace bureaucracy where they held considerable power. In years past, the prophet Micaiah had to contend against 400 of these official prophets. He correctly predicted a military disaster where the court prophets gave assurance of victory. Isaiah also had to deal with the same problem. His was not the only voice in the room. The attacks of his opponents not only dismissed his prophecies, they questioned Isaiah's prophetic legitimacy. When we discussed prophecy and divination across the ancient Near East, we talked a little bit about the politics that surround such things, how a clever king could play competing factions of diviners off against each other, or ask for verification of one oracle via another. This assumes some cynicism on the part of the king, which may or may not have actually been present, or simply an overriding sense of what had to be done, omens be damned. By this time in Israelite history, Isaiah is pretty clear that he does not think much of the occupants of the royal throne or its palace, partly because they refuse to do what God demands of them. Last time we discussed the historical context of Isaiah's prophetic career, particularly the Syro-Ephraimitic crisis, where an alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram tried to compel Judah to join their ill-advised coalition against Assyria. The king of Judah, Ahaz, wanted no part of a rebellion against Assyria, hence the war with his northern neighbors. However, the war was not going as well as he would have hoped. The big question was whether or not to appeal to Assyria for aid against the Syrio-Ephraimitic armies. It was indeed a deal with the devil. There was little doubt that Ahaz had any illusions that in any deal made with Nineveh, the Assyrians would hold all the cards. But without aid from Nineveh, would the kingdom of Judah survive? Isaiah was adamant in his opposition to any deal with Assyria. 
It was not just a matter of trust. It's quite likely that both Ahaz and Isaiah fully understood that the Assyrians were treacherous under any circumstances, and that negotiating them from a position of weakness was dangerous and likely to end badly. Where the two men differed was what action was necessary. Isaiah insisted that Judah would survive intact only if Ahaz did nothing, and trusted in God for Judah's survival. Ahaz, like any political leader, would have felt intense political pressure to do something. Isaiah made his case passionately to Ahaz, using imagery that eventually became some of the most familiar in Christianity, but in the process was taken profoundly out of context. I am, of course, referring to the passage in chapter 7 regarding a virgin and the birth of her child. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Chapter 7, 14, and 15 contains one of the most hotly contested passages in the history of Judeo-Christian discourse. It is also a remarkable example of what can happen to the meaning and use of a text as it is applied to the needs and biases of different communities in different times and when the resulting interpretive baggage accretes to the text. The problem centers around the word used in Isaiah for virgin, which is alma in Hebrew. When the Revised Standard Version was first published in 1952, substituting young woman for virgin, many ultra-conservative Christians burned it. Both Jewish and Christian faiths often assume that the prophets saw far into the future. This was particularly true of the Christian faith, and still is, uh, which believed that Christianity was a major nexus in an overarching plan for the salvation of humanity prepared by God from the beginning. Today, the view of prophecy is not taken as seriously by modern scholarship. Scholars see Old Testament prophecy as concerned with the issues and problems of its own time. Prophetic statements about the future tended to be fairly general, short-term, and based on what would happen if a prophet's words of that time were accepted or rejected. Modern scholarship rejects the messianic interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 uh, for a number of reasons, including the following. The message and sign were directed only to King Ahaz for his elucidation. Another reason is that the child in question could not have been the Messiah, because the concept of Messiah, as understood by Christianity and late Judaism, had not yet developed. Another reason is that although most young Israelite women are covered by the term Alma, and most of them would be virgins according to prevailing social and ethical standards, the term itself does not explicitly require virginity. This particular Alma, uh, in verse 14, has a definite article the virgin, or the young woman, implying that the identity of the woman was known to both parties. They were both talking about a specific woman. The grammatical features of Hebrew also make it difficult to determine whether the woman was already pregnant or would shortly become pregnant. 
there are birth narratives elsewhere in the Old Testament that use this uh, same construction for both cases. Incidentally, the name given to Jesus upon divine instruction was Yeshua, not Emmanuel. And while Matthew and Luke uh, both make reference to the intervention of the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus, Isaiah doesn't. The sign of the birth of the child derives its significance from when the child would be born, not how it was conceived, and that the timing of the birth of the child would be a sign of God's presence with his people, to be born precisely when the people's fortunes had reached their nadir. That said, the Septuagint definitely places this event in the future. The Virgin will conceive which could just as easily mean that the woman who is now a virgin would conceive later by the usual means. In many ways, this is classic Isaiah. Despite his predictions of doom and gloom, particularly in 1st Isaiah, he clearly takes no pleasure in it. His writing reveals someone who is much more concerned with life, and so it makes sense that he would couch his offer of national salvation to King Ahaz in the form of a vignette of the ultimate image of new life and birth. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music